0: young
1: and i'm sam tracy
0: and you're listening to season two of this week in drugs the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy including news science health and history this show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of students for sensible drug policy
1: an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs
0: every week on this week in drugs we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy.
1: And hopefully have some fun while we're at it.
0: We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights.
1: As usual, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news stories from the last week, a couple of quick headlines, and a forecast for the week ahead. Then it's time for the third installment of March's Drug of the Month where Rochelle will talk about the history of fencyclidine, also known as PCP. Then we'll be talking about New Zealand's experiment with a law regulating novel psychoactive substances with Ross Bell, Executive Director of the New Zealand Drug Foundation. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, it doesn't matter if you're not then turning that knowledge into action. So thanks for joining us for episode 36 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show.
0: It's time for the weekly news and forecasts where we talk to you about some of the biggest news items in the world of drugs and drug policy and then give you some events and other things to look forward to in the weeks coming up ahead Sam do you want to start us off with our first news item this week
1: yeah, sure thing. So for our first one is that this past Monday, the publicly traded medical marijuana company GW Pharmaceuticals, which we have talked about a few times before on the show, uh, they announced results for their first of four uh, phase three trials for treating Dravet syndrome with cannabis. And these results were overwhelmingly positive, which actually sent the company's stock soaring to uh, at one point reaching 130% increase in one day. And so this trial was specifically about a drug called Epidiolex, which is a 50-50 split of THC and CBD administered as a child-friendly cough syrup. And so this was a a trial that had 120 patients in it, and um, they administered Epidiolex and a placebo, and the median reduction in monthly seizures uh, for Epidiolex was 39% compared with a reduction of only 13% with the placebo. Uh, so it was very statistically significant. And um, there's still a lot of time that, and uh, a lot more research that has to be done. Uh, but it's a really great first sign. And uh, that made a lot of confidence within the, the marijuana industry of uh, this drug moving forward and possibly coming to market one day.
0: So this is really interesting. Um, Are these phase three trials, are those occurring here in the United States? Because I know that GW Pharmaceuticals is actually a British company, right? And they're the same ones who produce Sativex, which is currently um, not approved in the United States.
1: That's right. So this uh, these trials were taking place in the U.S. and are going through the FDA. Um, and so the aim here is to be bringing Epidiolex to the U.S. market. But you are right that it is a, a British company. Um, my understanding is that I believe Sativex and Epidiolex are both approved in many other countries. And so this is kind of them trying to bring it to the U.S. And um, uh, this would really be the first... Uh, natural, naturally derived cannabis medication in the U.S. If approved, uh, because right now the only one on the market, other than, uh, well, the only one on the market since this one isn't yet, um, is Marinol, which a lot of people may have heard about before, uh, which is actually a synthetic, one hundred percent THC pill. Um, and so this one is actually naturally derived, so from cannabis plants, uh, which is another major, major difference here, and allows it to have the CBD as well.
0: Uh, That's really, that's really awesome that they're being, that they're able to create these pharmaceutical products from uh, the natural plant itself. I think it probably has a lot more properties in it that perhaps the synthetic 100% THC lab created uh, medication doesn't. I, I know that the entourage effect is something that a lot of doctors talk about being important for many patients. I wonder if any of that is preserved. Um, in ep- epideole- epidialects. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm not 100% sure to pronounce it, so I've just kind of been going with that, but <laughs> however you want to. Um, and the same thing with um, the, the CBD and the entourage effect. That is totally right because this is specifically for uh, Dravette syndrome, which, as people may have heard about, um, it's like a very severe form of epilepsy, which usually hits children. Um, and so that's why it's administered in a cough syrup here too Or not a cough syrup, but a syrup like cough syrup is and um there was the very big focus on this syndrome in uh, the Sanjay Gupta uh, CNN specials that where he gave, uh, I think it was a three part special following around this family, including um, the group uh, or Charlotte, uh, who Charlotte's Web is named after the uh, the strain of marijuana, not the children's book. Um, and that's the very high CBD strain. And so that's why this, uh, which has both THC and CBD, is uh, looking to be so successful for uh, for Gervais.
0: So I've actually heard from a lot of parents um, who have children suffering from severe seizure disorders. Like Dravet syndrome is e- extremely rare, even amongst you know uh, the community of severe severe seizure disorder patients. Um, but they're really looking forward to the approval of this medicine because once it does become approved, then phys- then physicians can start prescribing it off label, even though it's only been re- researched for this one very specific and rare condition. <laughs> So there's, oh, so there's the potential to be helping a lot more people than just those who suffer from gervais.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, and it's gervais. That makes sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I actually did see an article here. Um, we need to move on to the next door in a second, but just also want to throw out that apparently uh, Epidiolex is also being uh, tested for another rare type of epilepsy called uh, Leno-Gastaut syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess a lot of French people discover these forms of epilepsy. <laughs> um And so that's uh, currently also being researched. And so it does look like um, this could be a very broadly applicable uh, drug, too.
0: So moving on to the next story now, and this one brings me back to my home country of Canada. The city of Toronto, which is the largest city in Canada, may soon be home to three new safe injection sites. So as past listeners of our show know and probably some other drug policy advocates, um, currently the only existing safe injection sites in uh, North America are both located in Canada in the city of Vancouver. So Toronto is taking the next step to add three new safe injection sites to the country. Um, Not only does Toronto's chief health officer recommend um, the approval of these sites, but so do four former mayors of Toronto, um, not including the famous Rob Ford, um, have put their weight behind it the safe injection sites would be located at three existing needle exchange facilities throughout the city, um, located in the downtown area and then further east and further west to ensure that you know, populations throughout the entire city are being served. Um, and one of those existing facilities has actually been distributing clean needles to uh, substance users since 1989. Together, those three uh, locations that were selected as the new safe injection sites account for about 75 percent of the 1.9 million needles handed out in toronto annually
1: wow that is a really smart idea of just you know transitioning the needle exchanges into safe injection sites because it is already this familiar community area like going all the way yeah back to 1989 for almost 30 years then um
0: yeah this kind of follows um the model of the i believe it's the dr peters center which was the second um, safe injection site approved in Vancouver so not Insight but the more recent one um, that one was also like a well-known uh, health clinic um, where other services could be obtained too so I think it's a good idea to put the safe injection sites like you said in these locations where um, injection drug users already know where to go to get help and to get um, their public uh, their health services um, addressed so as the globe and mail which is a newspaper in uh, canada describes it the sites would consist of small rooms set up inside the clinics that already exist so users would first obtain their own drugs um, from their traditional sources likely off the streets Um, a nurse would then provide a sterile syringe uh, syringe to the users um, and give them safety instructions and then stand by to watch and then after uh, the injection drug users would be observed in a chill-out room for any signs of an overdose and where they come down and get in a condition to go back to leave the clinic thereafter Um, and of course since it is an existing health clinic if they so desire drug users would be given access to health and other social services so this is an interesting article to me because i didn't realize there are only 90 safe injection sites throughout the entire world so this is still not that common of a harm reduction measure um, and if these three are approved then five of them would now be located in Canada
1: Oh, okay so there's two in Canada for some reason I was thinking it was just inside in Vancouver
0: um there is another one that was recently approved the same uh, the dr. Peter Center which I think we reported on a couple episodes ago but at that time oh, okay. it was probably still mm-hmm. in the approval process and it's gotten up and running now so there's two in oh, Vancouver okay, great. yeah <clears throat> Yeah, insight has yeah, been so there a is... lot. Yeah, insight has been there a lot longer though, so that's the one that people think about um, mm-hmm. when they think about safe injection in
1: Canada. Yeah, and so if they did actually approve these three, it would more than double the number in the country, which right. is pretty awesome.
0: Yeah.
1: And do you know is it is it a completely local process, or or what are the next steps here in terms of actually getting this approved? Does the uh, the federal government have, or the national government have to? Uh,
0: yeah, they, they would still need to gain approval from the federal government once this is approved by the city and then the province. Um, of course, the current government under uh, the current administration under uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and the Liberal Party has been much more friendly to uh, drug policy reform and harm reduction measures than the conservative government was just a couple of years ago. So what I have found really interesting was that of course, businesses in these high traffic downtown areas um, have been a little concerned about um, you know, security issues and what happens to drug users after they finish injecting and they're, if they're lingering um, in the neighborhoods. But spokespeople for the business improvement areas near um, many, several of these sites said that, despite their concerns, they didn't want to stand in the way of access to important health services. So I'm really glad to hear uh, that coming from the business community.
1: Yeah, that's really great. Hopefully the uh, the Canadian uh, federal government will fast-track this and we can actually uh, move that national number up to 93. And so for our next story, is a little bit uh, less inspiring, unfortunately. Uh, and this one is that a new poll out from Vox and Morning Consult, they, they uh-huh. asked 2,000 registered voters what they thought about decriminalizing medicalizing, or outright legalizing for recreational use a bunch of currently illegal drugs. Uh, This is ranging from marijuana to LSD to meth. Uh, And so unfortunately for us reformers, it found pretty low levels of support for each of these, uh, except for with marijuana.
2: And so when asked about
1: legalizing these drugs, yeah. Uh, And so for when asked about recreational use, uh, marijuana got 52% approval, but number two in this list of about 10 drugs was psilocybin mushrooms with only 14%. And then LSD and MDMA each got 10% support, and all the others were in single digits. So it was still quite low for um, legalizing any of these for recreational use. Then when asked about medical use, things were a bit better uh, with marijuana at 68%, psilocybin at 18%, and cocaine at 14%. And then uh, finally with decriminalization, uh, marijuana got 59%, psilocybin 22%. LSD got 18% and cocaine had 16%. And so I, I feel like this is just a little bit worrying in a certain sense, but we can also talk about why it's not. Um, but you, you think about all of this momentum against the war on drugs and so much exciting stuff happening with marijuana legalization and marijuana reform. But then we look at all of these other more common drugs and the public opinion on it really hasn't changed too much since the, the drug war ha- hysteria of the 70s and 80s. And so we are really looking at... Uh, some really low levels of support so if we're actually you know trying to pass we wouldn't be able to pass a uh, a medical cocaine ballot initiative like we would be able to with medical marijuana um but there are also some reasons that uh that we can be more confident re- in reform too but what, what's your kind of first thought about these uh these numbers
0: i mean obviously it tells us that we have a lot more work to do in the drug policy reform community to expand the conversation within the mainstream beyond just marijuana which obviously is a primary goal of this podcast so I think we can pat ourselves on the back (laughs) but also know that there's a lot of work still still to be done to keep spreading this message and keep talking about how you know drug reform um, policies um, such as the ones we talk about every week are just as important um, for public health and public safety as marijuana reform is. Um, The other thing that I'm interested in uh, about these numbers is that specifically the support for medical legalization of cannabis at 68% is much lower than what we've seen in some other polls um, in the past. So it kind of makes me wonder not that I think Vox is um, I think Vox is an outstanding publication. I think it's added a lot to um, the conversation since um, it was launched only a couple years ago, I think. But I'm interested in their methodology and how they, how why they have found lower support than in other um, very reputable poll- polls um, on medical marijuana, and what the numbers for the other substances that they polled about would look like um, if using, you know, some some other poll that found higher medical marijuana polling also.
1: Yeah, that is a good point, because I think we often see the the standard being somewhere actually more around 80 uh, percent or so for medical marijuana. So if that was higher and this was maybe just a sample, I mean, it was 2000 people, but that is still um, a relatively small number. And so it could be that it was a, a less less supportive group there. Um, and I think some of the kind of broader implications here, too, is that it's might be important for the reform movement to. Change our strategy or make sure that we treat all of drug policy reform holistically and working to, you know, just end the drug war as one one kind of big item rather than trying to chip away at it too much like we have with marijuana maybe we probably it doesn't look like we're going to be able to use those same sort of tactics and do it drug by drug it really makes sense in my mind of doing it marijuana and then doing something kind of like portugal in which it's not okay we're going to decriminalize cocaine and now a few years later okay maybe we'll decriminalize heroin but just we're going to decriminalize everything because this is what makes sense no matter what the drug is and that's probably the the best way to to move forward like this
0: i mean that's Based on these numbers, that's a really strategic recommendation because um, decriminalization of all three other non-marijuana substances that were pulled about, psilocybin, LSD, and cocaine. So support for decriminalizing those three is higher than even medical use of those three. So it seems like people who aren't super well-informed on this topic still believe that there are harm reduction measures associated with decriminalization Um, of the use of these substances, even if they're skeptical that they might be medically beneficial. And so moving on to our last news item um, of the week. So three former presidents of Latin American nations have urged the world to end the the quote, unmitigated disaster, end quote, of the war on drugs and have actually denounced the United Nations for its secrecy and lack of transparency leading up to Ungas in April so in an op-ed published in the la times last week three former presidents which include fernando enrique cardoso of brazil ernesto zedillo of mexico and Cesar gaviria of colombia whose the latter of whom's administration actually was responsible for the death of pablo escobar in colombia um did admit to their own role in the war on drugs and quote their own failures while in office um End quote. So this is kind of um, a trend that we've seen leading up to ungas which, um, as our regular listeners know, is the United Na- Nations General Assembly special session on uh, drug policy. And this the last time they had one of these special sessions on drug policy was 18 years ago. Um, and that's kind of what when they declared the war on drugs and criminalization as the primary measure for combating uh, the Internet or the global drug trade. Um, So this is kind of a trend we've seen uh, with with former leaders saying, oh, you know, like now that I'm out of office, I can take a step back, review the progress that was made under uh, my administration and see that, you know, criminalization and stigmatization of drug users um, hasn't been working and we need a new approach. Um, And that's really heartening to hear in the lead up to Ungas. But I guess we have to wait to see how influential that is on current leaders. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I find one thing that's so important here, too, is just the specific word of failures and that they are specifically acknowledging that they did fail while in office rather than what we sometimes see with leaders who get out of office and then have some years and then want to get back in the uh, public debate and they'll say, oh, I've, I've changed my mind or the facts, things are different now um, but won't acknowledge their own mistakes. But it is refreshing to see that they're they're not just calling for a different approach, but they're owning up to the fact that they used to call for or used to support this old status quo that obviously hasn't been working. And so... That kind of honesty, I find, is really refreshing um, among world leaders. And so I do hope that this ends up having some positive infl- influences on on gas.
0: So that's a really good point, Sam. And another thing that we don't often hear about and is another um, issue that these three former presidents have pointed out in their op ed is the lack of transparency surrounding the U.N.'s process leading up to on gas and what is likely to be very intense nego- negotiations. Um, So what they wrote in their op-ed, quote, um, or what they wrote in their op-ed was, quote, what was supposed to be an open, honest, and data-driven debate about drug policies has turned into a narrowly conceived, closed-door affair, end quote. So I think this is kind of disappointing to hear um, because I think a lot of us expected it to be an open, honest, and data-driven debate uh, given how much data and evidence there has been surrounding the failure on the war. Uh, on the war on drugs, Um, but apparently the UN has blocked a majority of member states and various health and human rights groups from participating. Um, And according to these three former presidents, um, the drafted declaration perpetuates the criminalization of producers and consumers rather than focusing on treatment for uh, people struggling with addiction. So we know that, I mean, For us, Sarah, our um, our engagement director, is actually in Vienna right now, uh, working um, or participating in the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. So hopefully we'll have some insight into the process, even though it hasn't been the most transparent possible, and then we'll transmit that information to you guys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely looking forward to the uh, ungassed discussion uh, when the time comes. Now, so moving into some of our quick hits, Uh, Our first one this week is that while touring a medical marijuana dispensary, Connecticut Senator or U.S. Senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy, announced he is signing on as a sponsor of the CARES Act, which would end the federal prohibition of medical marijuana. He's the 17th sponsor in the Senate, and there are 30 sponsors on the companion bill in the House of Representatives.
0: So last week, we reported on schools being shut down in protest of cartel threats in the region of Acapulco in Mexico. This week, Vice published a story about cartels now infiltrating the tortilla industry. Um, I thought this was kind of cute at first, but actually most tortilla shops are located in poor neighborhoods where young men sell tortillas door to door by motorcycle. So extorting, um, kidnapping, and threatening these businesses and basically hijacking hijacking them um, makes for a convenient distribution network and cover for these cartels. So it's really infiltrating into every aspect of society at this point.
1: And our last one this week is that Pennsylvania's House of Representatives passed a restrictive but workable medical marijuana bill. And since it was already passed by the state Senate last year, they just need to confirm some new amendments. And then once the governor signs it, they will be the 24th medical marijuana state. The bill allows for cultivation, processing and dispensaries in the state, but like New York, does not allow for home-growing or the sale of smokeable products. And so then moving into our weekly forecast, for the SSD peers in our audience the 2016 conference is now less than a month away which is really exciting. Uh, so it's in DC again this year and it's going to be running from Friday April 15th to Sunday, April 18th, and then followed by an ungas gas action that they're leading in New York. And so there is still time to register. And whether you're a current student, an alumni, or just a supporter, uh, you should definitely be there because the whole Weekend Drugs team is going to be there. And if you find us, we'll give you stickers and uh, hang out with you and maybe sign some books, too. And so you can learn a lot about drug policy and meet a lot of other great people. So you can register and learn more at ssdp.org conference or just by using the hashtag SSDP 2016.
0: And so if you're in the Denver-Boulder area immediately after the conference around 420, or if you would like to join us in the Denver-Boulder area around 420, the University of Colorado SSDP chapter will be hosting its third annual Cannabis Symposium and Teach-In. So this event has, been a very, has very special significance to me because it's actually something I started working on when I was still a student, Um, at CU Law, not just through SSDP, but as a member of the CU student government, um, to try and change the image around 420 on campus. And this was directly in response to administrative action, cracking down on these huge smokeouts that would occur on campus. I think in 2010, 2011, immediately before they did the crackdown, uh, these smokeouts would attract 10,000 people to our campus, most of which were not students. We didn't think the crackdowns were appropriate responses. Um, They included completely shutting down the campus for a couple days leading up to 420 and including 420 itself, um, which included school days so it made it really hard to get to class, uh, which is your main goal as a student. Um, You had to show your student ID or your staff ID if you were a professor at every single entry point on campus and there were police patrolling the campus throughout the days. So anyway, um, we started this action to replace these crackdowns and the smokeouts with something more productive and educational. And there's the third annual symposium now uh, with speakers and panelists from all across the cannabis industry as well as the reform movement. Um, and I will be speaking at the symposium as well as one of our past guests and a fellow SSDP alumni, Andrew Livingston. Um, and if you're interested in checking it out, we'll have more information on our Facebook page and we'll link to their Facebook event page on our website, of course.
1: All right. So that's everything for this week. Again, this has been our, our weekly news and forecast. And while we do pay really close attention to everything going on in the world of drugs and drug policy, uh, there is so much that it is hard to keep track of it all. So if you see any cool news stories that uh, you want us to feature or talk about on the podcast or hear about a cool event coming up or, or an important vote that's happening soon, be sure to just shoot us a message on Facebook or Twitter. You can just find us at This Week in Drugs or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com.
0: time for Drug of the Month where we take a closer look at the science, history, and recent trends in a different drug each month. For this episode, we'll be discussing the history of phencyclidine, also known as PCP. As Sam explained in the introductory episode, unlike many of our past Drugs of the Month, PCP is not a naturally derived substance, and instead is completely synthetic. PCP was first discovered by accident by a scientist named Victor Maddox a chemist who worked for Park Davis in Michigan, which was once America's oldest and largest pharmaceutical manufacturer, and is now a subsidiary of Pfizer. Maddox discovered PCP while investigating other synthetic analgesic agents. Although unexpected, PCP was identified as potentially interesting, and as such, was submitted for pharmacological testing. The promising results of these pharmacological investigations led to the rapid development of PCP. It was approved for use as an investigational drug under the trade name cernal in the 1950s as an anesthetic but because of its long half-life and adverse side effects such as hallucinations mania delirium and disorientation it was removed from the market in 1965 and limited to veterinary use manufactured in clandestine labs pcp emerged as a substance of abuse in the mid-1960s it often appeared in pill form and was known as the peace pill with an emphasis on the C in peace, a term that contributed to the acronym PCP. Its use spread in the 1970s and peaked around 1978, as snorting or smoking the powder form of PCP, which gave users a more immediate high, became more popular. Several extremely graphic and violent high-profile incidents in the early 2000s allegedly involving PCP has led to contemporary fear and hysteria surrounding the drug. The first such horror story involves an R&B artist named Houston Edwards Summers IV, who simply goes by his first name Houston. In 2005, before a show he was set to perform in London, Houston suffered an emotional breakdown and attempted to commit suicide by jumping from the window of his 13th floor hotel room, while reportedly under the influence of PCP. When people in his entourage and then his security personnel managed to stop him, he was restrained and locked in a first floor room. While in that room, Houston gouged out his left eye with a plastic fork. After the incident, he was arrested by London police and was put in rehab for two weeks. After the rehab, Houston went home to Los Angeles and apologized for the incident, though what he had to apologize for other than his own eye has been left largely unsaid. Although the use of PCP has achieved mythical status in this story, the artist does not confirm that the use of the drug was the cause of his eye gouging And from interviews granted afterwards, it sounds more like he was suffering a mental breakdown related to work, stress, and his own rising celebrity status, which he was not emotionally equipped to handle. It's unclear if Houston was ever formally charged for the use or possession of PCP. In the second incident, which is even more extreme and more disturbing than the first, rapper Antron Singleton, known as Big Lurch, murdered his roommate and cannibalized her, again allegedly under the influence of PCP. The victim was found in her apartment by her friend. Her chest had been torn open, and a three-inch blade was found broken in her shoulder. Teeth marks were found on her face and on her lungs, which had been torn open uh, from her chest. An eyewitness reported that when Singleton was picked up by the police, he was naked and covered in blood, standing in the middle of the street and staring at the sky. Neighbors reported hearing thrashing sounds followed by an argument when Singleton reportedly said, Tanisha, you're a sock, and from there was only screaming. A medical examination performed shortly after his capture found human flesh in the rapper's stomach that was not his own. The victim's boyfriend uh, said that she and the aspiring rapper had used PCP the day before the alleged murder took place. On November 7, 2003, Singleton was sentenced to life prison. He had been convicted of murder and aggravated mayhem the previous June after pleading not guilty by reason of insanity at the time of the murder. The court ruled that his intoxication and claimed insanity were not satisfactory reasons for committing the murder, after a court-appointed psychiatrist who evaluated Singleton reported that he had no reason to believe Singleton was of an unsound mind. Three other court-appointed doctors concluded that Singleton was insane during the commission of the crime. But the, dist- the district attorney made a motion for a directed verdict stating that PCP intoxication cannot be used as grounds for an insanity plea in California, and the judge granted it. So in this case, not only did the perpetrator admit to PCP use, um, but he attempted to use that as a defense for the crime he committed under its influence. In a 2009 hip-hop documentary called Rhyme and Punishment, Singleton explains that he began using PCP after, he- after being hospitalized for a car accident. Uh, to ease the pain of his injuries. From a lot of law enforcement testimony that I have personally heard in legislative committee hearings, it seems like a lot of the fear and hysteria surrounding the drug is also related to how frequently other substances, such as marijuana or tobacco, are either sprayed with PCP or dipped in it on the black market, leading to greater health risks to users and from a law enforcement perspective, making it more difficult to detect. So that's all for the history of PCP. Next week, Sam will be back with recent news and trends surrounding the drug. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing drug policy and reform in New Zealand with Ross Bell, the Executive Director of the New Zealand Drug Foundation. Thank you for joining us, Ross.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So to start things off, um, can you give our listeners a bit of background um, about the New Zealand Drug Foundation and how you personally became involved in drug policy?
2: well the 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 drug foundation is is like many other um, NGOs that you see around the world who are interested in trying to promote uh, a more health focused approach to uh, ad- addressing the you know the drug problem in our country so we're a we 're a national organization um, we 've been around for thirty years um, we were established by uh, medical doctors who were who, who had a real good focus on public health and on compassion and on evidence uh, and, and and you can imagine you know thirty years ago the discussions and debates uh, around uh, drugs were 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 worse than they are today and and so the the role of the foundation has always been to try to promote you know uh, innovation um, uh, good evidence uh, a, a real health focused approach to to drugs and And when we talk about drugs, we actually also include alcohol and tobacco. So we are able to actually, you know, cover a whole lot of different um, uh, substances that cause problems in in people's lives. Um, And I don't want to bore you with how how I got into it, but I I didn't have a background in in alcohol or drug policy. Um, I was someone, I guess, who was interested in more of the political side of life, and and how does, you know, how can you influence uh, policy and lawmakers to 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 do things better and differently? Uh, so I guess I, I I used to be a good lobbyist and um in in other fields, and I thought I, I can read a book about those drugs. I'm sure I can get my head <laughs> in that stuff. So so I'm I'm more of a more of an advocate than a, I was more of an advocate than a drug guy. But um, Mm -hmm. it may.
3: That's great.
1: Really good to have people like you on our side.
2: (laughs) Well, it might might scare you to know that I've been in my job for twelve years. Um, So I have, you know, I'm I'm feeling a little bit old.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's really astonishing to hear that the foundation was uh, formed thirty years ago. I don't think we have, you know, any uh, nonprofit organizations in the United States that really has that. that longevity other than, uh, the national organization for form of marijuana laws. And what's really, um, stood out to me about the foundation's, uh, you know, background is that it was formed by medical professionals, like you said, um, and that this was something that came from a really public health conscious perspective. Um, so it sounds like New Zealand was ahead of the curve, um, ahead of many other countries uh, in that regards with treating, uh, drug policy as a public health issue, and with uh, from a perspective of, of compassion.
2: Well, we're only just beginning to see some of the successes now. So it's taken 30 years to try to shift that debate. But there's mm. there, there's, there's there's something else that might interest people. So a, a lot of our work is in the policy space, trying to trying to influence what government um, does. Um, but we receive most of our funding, nearly 90% of our funding from. The government from the taxpayer, so oh wow, so oh. so we, mm. you know, we and and this 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 is unique to countries like New Zealand and Australia, where the government actually fund groups like us to do certain, you know, we do service delivery and and, and various things, but but we also think we've got a responsibility mm. to to take what we learn from the front line and to turn that round to lawmakers and say, well, you know, what you're doing is a bit, mm-hmm. and and you've got mm-hmm. you've got to change <laughs> what you're doing. And and governments, you know, for, for that length of time, for, for nearly three decades, uh have have funded us to do that. So um and and it is a it's quite a privilege but quite a tricky situation to be in, you know, biting the hand uh, that feeds you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I was actually looking at your website um before this interview and I saw that there's the links to the different services. Um there's one for drug help, meth help, and pot help were the three on there. Um, so is it that you're also not just an advocacy organization, but also doing direct service in terms of helping people struggling with addiction?
2: Yeah, and I think that that uh, we we do that, um, and I think that that actually strengthens our advocacy. Uh, mm. So we're not just advocating for a position because we've read it in a book. Um, uh, we, we, we're advocating positions because we actually have quite regular contact with people um, who who for whom drugs do cause you know significant problems but you know we're of the view just like many of your listeners mm-hmm. that that people who who are struggling with drugs and their loved ones uh currently face real barriers to getting help barriers of of the law you know people are too afraid to look for help because because of the criminal element involved the 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 barriers of stigma and shame uh that are that society puts around people who have drug problems. You know, I think we all know that that um, th- this is probably one of the most stigmatised health issues to have. Um, I think a lot of people see folks with, with drug problems as being, you know, morally wrong, you know, they've failed mm-hmm. in life. Uh, and we we don't do that for lots of other health conditions, but we do it for this. So, so yes, that... Having that connection more directly with people helps, I think, strengthen uh, uh, strengthen our advocacy, but also it protects us. Uh, if we ever get attacked, we can say, well, actually, you know, we, you know we're not making this stuff up. We, we, you know, we're seeing this all the time so that, we, you know, we're calling for reform because we see the harm that drugs cause in people's lives.
1: Yeah, that reminds me a lot of uh, someone else that we'd interviewed uh, early off on in our first season with uh, Lisa Reville from the Harm Reduction Action Center in um, in Denver. And so they do a lot of direct service, but also working on advocating for changing the policies so that they can hopefully in the long run be doing less direct service because there'll be less need for it. And so that is really great to see that you're kind of attacking it from both ends there.
2: That's what we try. And and, and also I think mm-hmm. I, I think people who are doing the service delivery stuff also have a responsibility uh, to to get involved in advocacy and i think I think there's a lot of untapped potential in in trying to get um, uh, addiction treatment workers more involved in advocacy, people in recovery more involved in advocacy, people who use drugs, uh, people involved in harm reduction services I think that there's a lot there, there's a lot more power. Uh, if we can tap into that experience. And one of the things that I've, you know, one of the, because, you know, as I said, I've been around for 12 years. And one of the things I've noticed that when you go to a, you know, a, a social event, you go, you know, you go to a restaurant, you, you're out with friends or you're out with, you're meeting new people and they say, what do you do? And you tell them, oh, I work at the Drug Foundation. and mm-hmm. And more often than not, people will, uh, out themselves or they'll confess something you know oh my father mm-hmm. is an alcoholic or oh we've got problems with our lot. teenage daughter you know um and in mm-hmm. the sense i'm getting is that there are a lot of people who have some personal connection to alcohol and drug issues um but but it, it, i have this you know what if, if that's if that's true and i think it is Why is it that we deal with the problems in such a bad way? You know, I don't think that most parents who are concerned about their kids would want to see their kids with a criminal record, or a whole lot of other, a whole lot of other people confronted with waiting lists to get into, you know, addiction treatment services. Uh, So Mm. one thing I'm trying to figure out is how do we tap into? How do we unlock? You know the the power. You know the fact that there's so many people affected by this. I think there's a lot of untapped potential in that.
1: Mm-hmm. And it is so important that we try to shift it over from taking the criminal justice approach and taking a public health approach instead. And, and so that's what really one, one of the big things that I wanted to talk with you about today was just that uh, for our U S listeners and myself included, um, you know, years ago, I think it was back in t- 2013, uh, we saw all these headlines about New Zealand creating a first of its kind system for approving these novel psychoactive substances and so rather than banning them through a knee-jerk response like we were seeing here in the United States and in a lot of other countries as well, uh, we've talked about the response to the United Kingdom a lot on the podcast as well, uh, but New Zealand was taking this this very different approach. And so that was, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, that was three years ago now or maybe two and a half, and, uh, but as often happens, there really wasn't much follow-up afterwards, so then it kind of went dark in terms of the international headlines. So I wanted to check in about everything and how it's gone since then. I know you talked about it at the uh, drug policy Alliance reform conference. And so uh, I wanted our listeners to kind of hear this story as well. So I was wondering just to, to start off at the very basic level, could you just explain what uh, novel psychoactive substances are for our listeners who aren't really familiar with that term?
2: The, the, the way that I, I think a lot of people will be aware of what we're talking about. We're talking about, um, uh, substances that are that, that are pretty pretty new to the market. Um, so we're not talking <clears throat> we're not talking about cocaine or meth. We're talking about new chemicals that have been cooked up, often to mimic the effects of of traditional drugs. So you know, uh, you have hallucinogens like N-bomb, which is designed to mimic LSD. You've got the bath salts and and and, and, and other pills and, and and crystals designed to mimic uh, MDMA and, and methamphetamine uh, and it's a, it's a newish phenomenon. Um, we used to call them legal highs uh, over here. They're called various things around the world, but we're talking about all these new chemicals that have, that have made their way uh, onto the market uh, and, and quite often are being sold as the substance that they're trying to mimic uh, and, and it's creating huge headaches mm-hmm. for law enforcement and health people all around the world.
0: And so what was the law that was passed in 2013 that uh, Sam referred to? He said it created a first-of-its-kind system to approve these new substances rather than uh, simply banning them um, out of fear or ignorance about what they really are. But what, does this, what did the system do? Were there steps that could be taken? Uh, to approve them or or research them further
2: well yeah well, yes yeah, so look i'll i'll quickly give you some history though cuz i think the history is important because i think it's i think the it's it, it, it's um it would be wrong to think that new zealand was doing this because we're such a progressive country okay <laughs> um, because
0: because that's what it looks like from over here.
2: <laughs> exactly, and 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 that, and that is fundamentally what what has happened. But it was sold as something very different, and I'll, I'll and I'll come to that. But we only got to that point, and I think there's an important lesson here. We only got to that point after we did all the old stuff. So you know, we mm-hmm. we, we tried we tried prohibition. We tried to do prohibition more quickly. You know, uh, so the government, and you know, pre- for about 10 years, the different governments tried the same old approach. Here's a drug, we don't like it, we're going to ban it. Oh, well, the industry have put a different one on the market, let's ban that one. And, and and this this that cycle repeated itself, just as it's repeating itself all around the world. And and so I think we only got to this point not because of some uh, fundamental appreciation that regulation is a better way at dealing with, with harm rather than prohibition. I think we got to that point because the government st- um, got frustrated that they were always being embarrassed by the industry. And so what happened very first... Mm-hmm. The first substance we had on the market was a thing called uh, BZP or benzylpiprazine, uh, which was a relatively mild stimulant uh, drug. And, and, and in the industry... the, the, the our, our drug law works just like everyone else's drug law. Um, uh, drugs get, you know, substances get scheduled, you know, put on a list. And if it's on the list, therefore it's illegal. Well, there were people mm-hmm. in the industry that figured out, well, actually, if there's a chemical that ain't on the list, by definition, it must be legal. And so they started putting products on the market. And these products could be bought from your corner store, your Seven Eleven, your Um, gas station, these were products that were available everywhere. Uh, And they could be on the market because they weren't on the banned list. Um, and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, And so the government started trying to put these substances on the banned list. And the very first time it happened, the industry said this to government. They said, if you ban, you know, go ahead, you know, ban, you can ban this product, but we guarantee you the very next day we're going to have a replacement. And they did. Literally, mm-hmm. the very next day, <laughs> BZP was taken off, and and uh, uh, DMAAA came onto the market, and, uh, and, and and that cycle repeated with synthetic cannabis and other things. And
0: like, and just tangentially, that's kind of what um, Great Britain's bill. Um, with their psychoactive substances ban was trying to cut off the industry at the past right instead of having to add new chemicals onto their list as they were developed because they were developed so quickly they just tried to ban everything that could possibly be a psychoactive substance now it's leading to difficulties in enforcement um, with what is like an okay psychoactive that has always been around or a product that's always been legal that could be used Um
2: And and, and they're trying to ban products that haven't been invented yet, and and New Zealand, you know, (laughs) we we looked at that. We we already had within our within our drug law very wide analog provisions, which meant that you could actually capture even if it wasn't on the schedule, if it was something similar to something on the schedule, that could be banned. So we tried that. Um, We we even gave the government powers that you know emergency powers that within seven days they could declare a substance illegal and, and, and have it removed from the shelf. We tried to change the – all these things that different folks are trying around the world, we've done it, and, and it didn't mm-hmm. work. Uh, and, and so that's why we got to this point where, where someone had this very good idea. It wasn't me. I won't claim responsibility, but someone had this very mm-hmm. good idea. They said, well, actually, you know, why don't, we, why don't we flip this around and why don't we say to the industry – you know, because there were lots of folks that are making a lot of money um, in, 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 you know, doing this. Uh, let's say to them, you can still make money, but you have to first uh, prove to us that what you want to sell uh, is, uh, you know, is low risk of harm. You know, that it isn't going to create a whole lot of problems. And for you to prove that to us, here are the hoops. That you have to jump through, and and the hoops were very similar to to what pharma, a pharmaceutical company would have to prove around a new medicine, except for mm-hmm. the industry didn't have to prove it, you know it cured anything. They just had to prove that you know it was low you know it was low low toxic. Uh, it wasn't going to create dependence. You know there, there were all these criteria they had to meet, and, and mm-hmm. to prove that they had to go through a testing process. Uh, and so and so what you do you recognize the industry has interests you know they want to make money they would prefer to make money in a regulated market sort of a guaranteed mm-hmm. thing and 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 there were many in the industry that were sitting on piles of cash that said yeah yeah we can we, you know we can play this game we can we can do the testing we can do all of that kind of stuff and so we thought it was quite a neat uh you know attempt at at flipping at flipping the system round putting the onus taking the onus off government to have to prove that substances were harmful and mm-hmm. put that onus on the industry for them to prove that their products were low risk. And if mm-hmm. they could mm-hmm. prove that then then there were a range of very good regulations, the same kind of regulations that that countries are looking at around alcohol, tobacco and, and cannabis, you know, regulations around age restrictions, marketing controls, dosage limits. There was a whole lot of you know really clever stuff that if you were going to design uh a a regulatory system, then there's lots of things that we were doing that we thought were, were kind of cool you mm. know, child child proof containers and stuff like that uh the help yeah. you know uh, free phone numbers to the poison center or to drug help kind of services they were going to be mm. you know required to be on the packages so all all this really neat stuff was was designed in this law mm. um and then the law was passed, and i 'm sure we can start mm. about what.
1: what happened next yeah and and, and also just something I've always wondered with this too I I mean obviously that sounds like it it is a pretty ideal sort of regulatory system for these new substances that are being created Uh, just because and, and just for you know, recreational drugs or whatever word you'd like to use for it, uh, as opposed to medical drugs, just because, you know, the FDA process here in the U- US has all these hoops you have to jump through, and then you can trust the product, uh, at least will be not too harmful for you. And it makes sense to do that for recreational drugs too. Um, and then the one hang up that I would have in terms of, say, if this was proposed uh, in terms of supporting it, would be why didn't this also apply to all drugs and not? you know the traditional ones like LSD or MDMA if they can jump through these same hoops what, was that addressed at all in they would not have been eligible for this new system is that correct
2: so that,
1: only new ones
2: that, that's the only hang up you had no it was it was <laughs> it was really it, it was really so so the, mm-hmm. the the short answer is um if a if a drug was all already scheduled under our mm-hmm. under our drug law then it wasn't could not be a candidate Okay. Uh, for the system, and and, and, and that in itself um, has created a real a, a very interesting discussion because the one thing that that folks should know is that the government that passed this law is a very conservative government. They didn't pass this law because they're pro drugs or or, or 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 deeply committed to free markets and 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 and, and good regulation. Okay. You know, they they passed this because they were you know. Trying to appease community concern, uh, you know, about about all of these new products, and so this was not going to be a. Go- this is a government that has always been deeply anti-drug, so there was no way that they were going to say, "Well, you know, let's open the system up to MDMA or or, or anything else." But what it, but there was a flow-on effect f- for that, because the products ultimately that started causing the biggest community concern were all of the synthetic cannabis products. Um,
0: like Spice and K2. Uh, and oh, like
2: Spice that. and K2 and Chronic and you know, all, all that stuff. And, and actually it did seem that every time the government banned some synthetic cannabis products, they were replaced with much more harmful. You know, we were genuine. You
0: mean like if, if these things were banned through the approval system, like they, didn't, they weren't able to uh, pass muster to be a safe substance?
2: You know, that, that system hasn't actually worked yet. No, I'm talking about okay. synthetic cannabis products that were were scheduled, you know, were banned using the old drug law. So this was okay. before the law was passed. It was as the law was being debated, the government was still scheduling, making illegal uh, lots of the synthetic cannabis products. and And so synthetic cannabis products that weren't causing problems were made illegal and then replaced with ones that started causing problems and and the the what the effect that that had is that people started saying well, why are we why are we even talking about this? why don't we just make legal the the cannabinoid that we know a lot about, which is natural cannabis you know why why are we talking about the synthetic stuff why aren't we talking about this wouldn't it be better that we legalize uh, natural cannabis and get rid of the synth, you know, in, in order. Right. It seems
0: so intuitive <laughs> instead of trying.
2: And so, so that was an, I mean, and that was an interesting outcome in all of, uh, in all of this. Um, that that it did cause people to start thinking about. Well, actually, yes, there are some substances that are less harmful than, than others, and maybe if we made those less harmful substances more readily available, it will, you know, the effect will be that you get rid of the. You know, uh, by natural selection, you get rid of the horrible ones. So it it created interesting debates and, you know, amongst the public about what are the best ways at managing sort of all of these things. Mm
1: -hmm. And so then speaking of debates among the public, uh, I know that after this law was passed, that there was or at least seemed to be a pretty big backlash against it that caused there to be efforts then to repeal the law. Uh, so could you explain what exactly happened here that, that derailed this uh, seemingly really common-sense system?
2: Two, two things happened, and, and, and actually we should have predicted them both, but we didn't. So I think in the end I was pretty naive about some of this. Um, and one of the things was this. We thought that uh, the public had witnessed this 10 years of this cat and mouse cycle, you know, the substance on the market, get rid of it, new one comes on. You know, we thought that the public saw that, you know, that wasn't working, so we need to try something new. And so all of the public discussions and all of the discussions that happened uh, in, in our parliament, I thought were these deeply sophisticated discussions around regulation is a better way than prohibition but actually on reflection what people were hearing when 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 the government was saying we're going to pass this law um, and it's going to give us better control over these drugs I think what people were actually hearing you know was we're going to get rid of these things once and for all it's not what was being said but I think that's what that Mm. that that what was being heard Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. And and so I think there was this expectation that yes, this new law, this groundbreaking world-first law, was going to fix this problem once and for all. But the community concern came out of um, one: the law was really badly implemented. Uh, you know, in, in, in practical terms, it was just done badly. But um, but one of the one of the regulations that was put in the law was that local that local communities. Through their local government, could have some say over where the retail stores would be located, and these communities didn't want to have that discussion. We, you know, we were, we don't want to choose where these stores are located. We don't want the stores full stop. So get rid of the stores. We thought you were getting rid of these, and so there was a real miscommunication about actually what the Lord did. And, and and a real disconnect between community expectation and and and, and, and the law and its regulations. Um, and and then we, we, we got into an election cycle and, and so the government responded very quickly to that community concern. The second thing that caught us by surprise and again we were naive it shouldn't have was the animal animal welfare um, lobby. Uh, who? Well, that's
0: surprising.
2: <laughs> mm. Exactly. So, you know, when you're designing regulations, which are you know, which are going to prove that products are low risk, how do you prove a product is low? Risk? How does a pharmaceutical mm. company prove that their mm. that their medicine their medication is going to do what it says? Well, they tested on animals. We had no, we didn't even think that, okay, so we're going to have, on, on on paper, this looks great. You're going to have a system, a uh, mm-hmm. testing system that looks like this. These are the criteria, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's easy. But no, some mm-hmm. of the, how do you prove those criteria? Well, you test your things on animals. Why are you testing these horrible drugs on our, you know, on our animals? And And, um, and we were caught by surprise. The government was caught by surprise. And and so as a result of that, because you can imagine, so what happened is that um, large numbers of protests would, would would descend on our lawmakers. And you can imagine there's, a, there's people with great placards and they're walking along the street with all mm-hmm. these cute animals, the beagle dogs and the rabbits. <laughs> My goodness. And no one, mm-hmm. like, no one is going to go on TV and say, oh, no, we should have the right to test you know, these these substances on animals. You know, we're more interested in protecting kids. So I'd rather a kid, you know, isn't the guinea pig. I'd rather an actual guinea pig was the guinea pig. No one's <laughs> I wasn't gonna go against the you know, mm. the, the the animal lobby that had genuine you know, absolutely you know, I I think we all agree that animal testing, you know, is a is a bad business anyway. So mm. we weren't gonna go government responded very quickly to that. And so so the the law hasn't been repealed um, but it it has been amended, and one of the amendments is that animals cannot be used as part of the testing process, and that makes it really difficult for someone in the industry who has a product you know how do I prove that this is low risk when I can't test on animals and It might be that in time non animal tests you know can be used, but at the moment that and that ban on uh, animal testing is a big barrier. In the other I mean that
0: that is a victory for animal oh I was just gonna say that is a victory for animal rights but it, it strikes me as odd that there isn't you, that there weren't parallel efforts or immediate responses to animal testing for like traditional pharmaceuticals also to go along with that um, or even in like the cosmetics industry or other things you know like animals aren't only being mistreated in this one area but it's the only one that we care about.
2: But no, no, it, it was actually the, the the context was is that the that that New Zealand a, and at the same time a few other countries have prohibited the use of animals for cosmetics,
3: oh, so okay. so
2: that mm. so so that has happened, and and, and, and it's part of a uh, you know it's part of a growing movement to to stop the use of animals and a whole mm. lot of things, including pharmaceuticals. Are
1: they still used for medical research? Well, they, then, they, are I mean mm-hmm. New
2: Zealand doesn't do a lot of medical research, but yes, you know we we, oh, okay. we do have mm-hmm. some animal testing. Done in in New Zealand, uh, but but I think thankfully what we're seeing around the world is that, as uh, as people as people gets get more uncomfortable about animal testing for pharmaceuticals and cosmetics, then there's new science being developed to, in, in, that, where you can use uh, avoid the use of animals. You know they're, they're coming up with new tests, and I think they'll come up with a new test that will be good enough. To be used for, um, for, for 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 this law you know for, for run for the industry to, to test their products without having to use animals, and I think that 's a good thing
0: so before I interrupted you, I think you were going to go on to your second amendment to the bill, which caused a... well there
2: was, a, <clears throat> there, was, there, was a, there was a second there was a second thing it wasn 't really an amendment to the law the the, the, the big the big problem. Was that the you know the animal testing was banned, uh, and and that any product that was already on the market that that was removed, and 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 the industry was told you have to you have to start from scratch, you have to go through the testing, the testing regime, and but the, so the second thing that has happened is that the industry, you know, the folks with all the money have realised that well, why would we bother with this cumbersome, expensive um, New Zealand system where there's no guarantee that we'll actually make make our way through the testing process. Why bother with that when we can go to Europe with our products and still sell over there or North America and and sell over there? And so a lot of the folks in the industry have simply shipped, shipped their products in themselves to other parts of the world where, you know, where where they don't have a law like us. So actually, the, mm. ironically, mm. The, the result of the New Zealand system is that there are no, um, you know, n- none of these substances are legally available. Now, of, of course, the black market is awash with mm. them, but, the, mm-hmm. you know, you can't go to a 7-Eleven and buy these anymore. And so the public is very pleased, you know, the public. Yeah, so
1: it is, they ended up getting what they thought that they were getting at the beginning, kind of unfortunately.
2: Yep. So it's hmm. a, New Zealand, it's an interesting, It's an intre- I think there's lots of lessons. There, there's lot, if, if you're going to do this again, you know, there's, there's, there's many ways you do it differently. And so, yes, the law is currently a bit of a failure. Um, but it proves that you can have a debate with politicians about regulation. Uh, if you are ever going to do regulation, I think that this is important for the United States, who, are, you know, many states are looking at. Regulating cannabis. If you are going to do regulation, you've got to do it really well, and we didn't. Um, you know, we didn't sell it well. Um, you know, I think the communication around all of this was, was was appalling. You know, where there was that disconnect between community expectation and the actual thing. So I, I think there are a lot of lessons. So it's uh, unfortunate we we failed. It would have been great to say, you know. New Zealand is so awesome. Now, movies are terrible, though. Those Hobbit movies, <laughs> I must apologize. They're dreadful bloody things. <laughs>
1: well, you produce Flight of the Conchords. Yeah, they are brilliant.
2: <laughs> so, you know, um, and... Uh, but, but yes, yeah, so, so there's ways... Uh, you know, I think I think it's helped, rega- you know, despite the, despite the setback, it has actually helped advance mm. the, the policy discussions in, in New Zealand. And, and now... And now we're beginning to talk to government about drug checking and scaling up harm reduction services and early warning systems, making sure, because all these products, you know, they haven't gone away. Uh, They're all on the black market. And so I think government now knows it doesn't have much control over the black market. So what can it do uh, to keep people safe? Um, And so we are, the the government is beginning to be more open to, to harm reduction approaches, for these new substances that are still, you know, that are still available.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so unfortunately we are coming up on time. Um, but I did just, since we're talking about the international levels and what other countries can learn from this too, I did want to just take one quick minute to ask you about. Uh, ungas, gas, which is coming up, um, which we're talking a little bit about before uh, actually hopping on the formal discussion, and a lot of SSDP chapters are really involved with. And so, um, what are you looking forward to it on gas, or how is uh, how is the New Zealand Drug Foundation uh, planning to be involved there?
2: We're we we're, we're getting very involved. We're we're working with our our government um, to help shape what you know what they want to take to ungas. So you know, I don't think we're going to see revolution. Uh, at, at ungas, but I think it's going to be really important to shift the tone of the debate, and I think the tone of the debate will shift towards increasingly towards how do we deal with this properly as a as a health issue and 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 back here in New Zealand, the government has just released a new uh, national drug strategy and in the very first sentence it has it says new Zealand's alcohol and drug problem is first and foremost a health issue. You know, that's stuff we've all been saying for a long a long time, but now it's in a government document. And that one sentence alone influences uh, how the government will respond to drugs. They're not going to legalise everything overnight, but it, it will help shift. It shifts the tone. And I think that's what Ungas will do as well. It will make it safer as more countries shift, you know, Start shifting the language away from the war on drugs towards this is a health issue, this is a human rights issue. Then I think that that will free up countries that want to experiment. Uh, I think it'll, it, it, it we will see uh, uh, an environment where countries can start um, moving away from from a punitive approach. And so I think, ungas, you know, it's not gonna, we're not going to get everything we want, but it it will help. Uh, uh, change the, the kind of uh, approach that, that folks put into place. And so countries like your own that are experimenting with cannabis regulation, Uruguay, uh, the Europeans who, who put more money into drug treatment, you know, all of that stuff is going to be very important.
0: Yeah, so we're really looking forward to seeing what comes out of UNGES too, and hopefully there will be more space for uh, countries to develop their own uh, drug policy approaches. So you've given us a ton to think about today, especially um, in regards to this uh, new Psychoactive Substances Act and how it can be regulated and treated, even though your experiment, unfortunately, seems like it has failed. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that other um, nations couldn't Uh, take the same approach and like you said, regulate and implement it um, better and communicate better with the communities about what expectations should be. So this kind of brings us to the end of our discussion. And we always wrap up our calls with a call to action since educating people is pretty useless if we're not also using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So if you could have listeners do one thing right now, what would you ask them to do?
2: Oh my goodness, that is a tricky question. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure you can tell. I, I never have one one answer to these <laughs> questions. Look, I, I I I think it would be to you... better, un- better understand uh, the drug policy debates we are having if, in the in the, in wider social context. So so in in the United States, connecting drug policy to the Black Lives Matter movement. It's the same issue over here where our First Nations communities are, are decimated by punitive approaches to drugs, but don't see drug policy as a standalone issue. Put it in the context of poverty, put it in the context of race, of of, um, of exclusion, and, and, and just don't see this as a trendy little thing, that it has, it, it's part of a wider social change movement that we all have to be involved in. Hmm.
1: Great. Thank you so much. That, that's a fantastic one. It is really important for everyone to try to understand things in a much larger context, especially on the international level. And so thank you again so much for coming on to speak with us today. Again, for our listeners, this has been Ross Bell, who is the executive director of the New Zealand Drug Foundation. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to episode 36 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank Ross Bell of the New Zealand Drug Foundation once again for joining us for the discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests and news stories, and so much more. If you're listening to this on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a review because it'll really help other people discover us. And as we said last week, we re- also recently joined a, a website called Patreon, which allows people to give small monthly contributions to creators that they like. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help us continue our work and then spread the word even further, please head over to patreon.com TWID and donate as little as $1 a month. We've even got some really cool prizes for people who chip in a bit more. So that's all for this week. So remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this time around is Back for More by Kevin Bearden. All right.
3: After me, but I don't seem to care, and I don't wanna know. Don't ask my family, cause they don't seem to care, and they don't care to show. Me. Charlie's back in and- the Charlie you want some more I just want you to go Is it enough? Is it enough? Is it enough? You, but you don't really care, and you don't really know. He loves his family, but they don't seem to care, they just want him to go. Charlie's back from the war, who didn't Charlie's needs are sore, but we don't care.